Today we have a very special guest joining us, my friend Drew Craig. Drew is an economic geologist with extensive experience in emerging and frontier jurisdictions. He's the principal consultant at Rocklore Exploration Services, he's Enthalpy's EMEA principal associate, and he's a founding member of the Minexia team who have built the NR private market investment platform. He's also a reserve officer presently serving as the British Army's chief geologist. Thanks for joining us on The Rocks. Let's dive in. Welcome, Drew, to On The Rocks. Cheers before we start. Indeed, absolutely. I've got one ready here, yeah. <laughs> I know, ready to go. What are you drinking today? Uh, well, I'm, I'm Scottish. It would be remiss of me not to imbibe uh, a little bit of the amber nectar and so so recently after <laughs> Robbie Burns night as well. So my favorite tipple on the whiskey front is Glen Morangie and tonight I've got one of their sherry cask finish uh, speciality whiskies which is rather rather nice. So that that's what I'm on. Very nice. Well, since uh, you and I met working together in Afghanistan and as you are the the senior geologist for the British Army. I am drinking uh, horse soldier whiskey. Have you had this before? I can't say I have, no. <laughs> okay. So this is a bourbon that was started by some of the special forces guys who rode on horseback into Afghanistan. Ah, brilliant. They have a distillery in Tampa. The glass of the bottle is forged in 911 steel all about Afghanistan and the work that's been done over there. So in honor of that, I'm, I'm drinking that whiskey. And Mark, my husband, who you know well, also made sure I'm drinking out of these glasses he got me. I don't know if you can see it through the screen, okay, yeah. but it's got a 308 round bullet that makes the handle of the glass. <laughs> Very appropriate. I've got my finest Edinburgh, Edinburgh crystal. Yeah, you're much classier than I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, so, I mean, you and I met in Afghanistan working together, but you've worked in all kinds of other crazy jurisdictions. What are some of the places you've wandered around? Well, let's face it, Afghanistan was was pretty far out there in, in, in many respects, not least the, the geology and just how fantastic that was. I've been really lucky over my career to get to some of those locations where it would be very challenging to get to now. And equally, to get to some of those locations that are just incredibly challenging to get to at the best of times. So doing heli drilling in deepest, darkest Greenland, you know, glacial terrain, you know, striking ice features everywhere, just, just really, really stunning through to deepest jungles of Suriname or, or you know, South, South America. Quite a bit of work in Africa. Yeah, crikey, everything up to up near the Arctic Circle in Russia. Wow and then right across the Middle East. So I've done quite a lot in, in Saudi over the years, but one of my favorites was actually my first real sort of job in the, the exploration sector, which was in Yemen of all locations. Oh, that was your first? Wow. Yeah, <laughs> a bit of a, perhaps a bit of a baptism of fire, but um, you can still go to Yemen, I suppose, right now, but it's it's very risky given the, the ongoing uh, civil war there. But back in uh, 2002, when I was out there, uh, I was given the opportunity to work for a company called Zincox. They were developing a project called uh, Jabal Salab. And I went out for three months. Mm. Uh, I spent the first month actually building the camp. Then all the drill kits arrived and we did some man pack drilling all over the project. This was the final phase of resource drilling. Two more months of, of work on that. It was a rather incredible experience. Uh, the scenery was stunning, high up in a, an escarpment in the middle of Yemen, views as far as the eye could see, I think one of the things that really appears to me when I when I work is the, the cultural aspects as well. And 
a really interesting cultural mix in Yemen as well, as I'm sure you've seen some of the locations you've been to as well. Yeah. And it's always different than you expect when you get there. Every country is slightly different than I'm prepared for. Yeah. You never stop being surprised. And I guess that's one of the tricks of being an exploration geologist is you've, you've got to be fairly sort of adaptable and, and to a certain extent, throw yourself in and, and immerse yourself in the culture. I mean, Yemen was... Uh, just such a mix mash of different ways of doing things and having to sort of accommodate this and accommodate that whilst trying to instill no health and safety really is important for you and for me and and all those other things but what a marvelous experience and uh, that that really sort of stuck with me and it was through the the work there that uh, I actually got involved with the SRK group which obviously then you know led us to meeting when we were out in Afghanistan do you have any memories that really stand out for you of working in Afghanistan with the team? Probably spent cumulatively just over six months in and out, depending on which part of the project I was working on. I guess what was quite striking about the project was just the variety of stuff that we got involved with, mm. from sitting in the ministry and sat opposite the minister and providing him with you know advice and, and guidance on how he might build the, the sector right the way through down to some of the stuff we were doing, you know, flying around looking at the sites and preparing for the tender round, or, or, or indeed working at the Afghan Geological Survey and, and trying to train up the local geologists, which is always one of the rewarding things when you're working abroad is that you you meet very often these very young, enthusiastic geologists who will just suck up the knowledge. Yeah. Um, so working yep. with them was, was was very rewarding. But as I think as I alluded to earlier on, just, just flying around Afghanistan, the geology there is, is truly stunning. And when you're <laughs> when you're kind of flying just below the hilltops in a, in a helicopter with the doors open, uh, it's quite dramatic. <laughs> it's quite exciting, um, and you really do get you get very close to the the, the geology. <laughs> Definitely uh, memorable, uh, as well as the you know the broader team who we were working with. So some real characters in there. I think for, I think we did great. <laughs> were you on the field trips to Balkab? I can't remember if you were with us on those ones. Yeah, Balkab, Badakhshan, Zarkashan, and Shahid, I think. One of my favorite memories is every time we would land at Balkab, which for the listeners is a is a copper project in sort of north central Afghanistan. You know, we would land down there by the river, and all the villagers, of course, would would come out to greet us because the Afghan Geological Survey had been doing field work there in the village every season, even the kids knew about the geology. And one time this little boy ran up and had like a little miniature rock hammer, you know, and was was showing us that he knew how to take little samples of the rocks. And to me, that that always stands out because there's such a different perception around around the Afghan people and really how welcoming they were to us and how excited they were about geology and really about mining activity potentially coming into their area. Yeah. What we often forget at the sort of front end of the industrial mining side of things is that there's been artisanal mining going on in these countries all around the world for, for millennia. I mean, everybody knows about the sort of legendary lapis of Afghanistan. It's been Found all over the world in the tombs of the pharaohs and so on and so forth. So it just goes to to attest to the, you know, how the mining sector used to work and and just how far those those commodities got. Hmm. You you would struggle not to find some level of artisanal mining anywhere in the world. It never ceases to me to amaze me when I do go to some of these places where you do see a, a mine that was several thousand years old in reality. Mm-hmm. You kind of wonder about how on earth did they go about doing their business at the time and 
what we need to remember is that the earth is evolving. Okay, we've, we've got the, the current climate change issues to, to grapple with. But many of these sites back in the day were very possibly quite luscious, the completely different rainfall patterns. And therefore, they had the, the raw water as a, as a commodity to use for processing the minerals. So where we would look at it now and go, this is just a barren desert, it might have been uh, permissible for, for mining before. So it's really interesting in that respect as well, when you see some of these sites. Yeah, that even having worked throughout the Middle East and North Africa, just in general, it always strikes me at sites in that part of the world, how you can feel the history, which at least for us here in the US, you don't you don't get so often, right? There are fewer sites in our part of the world. But I, I always think of walking the path down to Petra, you know, in Jordan, you know, walking this road past carved buildings into the side of a canyon, and you can just feel the years and years of people walking before you. And I always would get the same sense at uh, Balkab, where there was a lot of slag, uh, and we knew that people had been had been mining there a long, long time ago. It brings to mind even with the lapis that you mentioned, a lot of people don't know the lapis in King Tut's mask came from Afghanistan as well, right? I mean, traveled a far away to get from Afghanistan to Egypt. It's been phenomenal. Absolutely. You look at some of those old trade routes and you said the minerals, they found traces of, of coca leaf from the sort of Bolivia and the Andes. They found that in the pharaonic tombs as well. So it just goes to show that, you know, way back in the day, whether it was the Vikings or whether it was the, you know, the, the South Americans or whomever, th- these trade routes existed. That's quite remarkable when you think about it. Yeah, we always think of the world today as being incredibly connected, but it's actually been connected for a long time, right? Just yeah, not as fast. Much, <laughs> just not as fast, yes. There were all those connections in there, yeah, for, for sure. It's almost to the point of being, I don't know, dare I say, almost overly connected these days. I mean, both what you're doing with Prospector and what I'm doing with uh, NR Private Market through the Menexia Group, you know, we're we're effectively trying to shorten that time even more. Well, certainly because of the COVID pandemic, we're seeing a large number of those groups who have developed products that can kind of bring the field trip to you. I think you've spoken to some of the, the, the guys from Verify, for example, you know, so you get these virtual tours now. And, and this is just, they say, it's a slowly a steady march towards just digitizing you know, everything. Now, fundamentally, you're never going to go away from the need. I hope right. of having a geologist <laughs> on the ground with his rock pick and his, or his, excuse me, his or her uh, rock pick or hand lens uh, going out in their perspective. Uh, indeed, as we saw in Afghanistan, the fact that we could fly the whole of the country with high map image, uh, high map, and, and get that data set, let alone the geophysics, let alone other the, the amazing work that was done by the U.S. geological team, so as a vector in on the sites of interest. I mean, it's really quite remarkable what we can do now. And even more so, the sort of machine learning, artificial intelligence uh, systems that are coming online now that can crunch those huge volumes of data. You look at a number of jurisdictions around the world where the US Geological Survey or the French BRGM or the British uh, Geological Survey have been in and and done long-term target generation programs. They've done stream sediment sampling. They've done geophysics of one form or another. And there are these huge volumes of data that if they can be smashed and compacted together and properly analyzed, start spitting out these anomalies that we go, we hadn't spotted that before because we just couldn't drill down over all those layers. Uh, and there's some really interesting work going on with a number of country uh, companies who are who are really getting involved with that and, and you know very much like what you guys are doing with the uh, Prospector Portal. Yeah. And I know for me, Prospector really came out of 
my experience working in very frontier markets and knowing the key questions that investors ask to de-risk a project and how they evaluate risk. There's a lot that goes into technical and financial due diligence, absolutely, at the later stage of, of someone making an investment. But early on, they look at a few key things. They look at jurisdiction, the country, the commodity they're interested, the you know the development stage of the project, essentially, and the level of resource or reserve estimate. And that's really why we started Prospector, was to allow people to simply search by key investment criteria and generate a deal flow list. And again, that really came out of me working with people looking at very risky jurisdictions or jurisdictions that are perceived as very risky. And I wonder how much has your experience in frontier markets influenced what you do in our private markets? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how you sort of explain how you sort of slice the information up. And in many ways, that's similar to how we do it. So we've got our four C's. If you go down to a jeweler, you're gonna you want a, a new di- a diamond ring. You're looking for your cut clarity, so on and so forth. We break our four C's down into the country, the concession, the commodity, and the company. So it's very similar to yourself. And then our process, it's all sort of internal vetting in effect. But we'll look at a, a range of factors for each one of them. You know, for a country, for example, we're looking at some of the standardized factors that are published. You know, is it the Fraser Institute report? Is it the uh, corruption index? Is it the human development index? And there's lots of these metrics out there from the World Bank or whomever it might be that you can you can actually take a specific figure and then you can benchmark that against uh, those countries' peers or just put them in an overall pecking order. So you can you can do a bit of sort of numerical mathematics ranking there, but you can also take a view. For example, if you look at the top ten copper and gold producers around the world, whilst many of those are sort of top mining. Australia, Canada, whatever it might be. There's a large number of others who, what many would define as being fairly high in the risk spectrum. And I guess that's probably where Manexa came into being in the early days, is that because of the collective experience of those involved, some of us had military backgrounds, uh, many of us had worked in some of those more crunchy jurisdictions, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Saudi, and had a better appreciation for you can work in these areas. You just need to be slightly more savvy. But how do you communicate that to an investor? You know, obviously across the investment side, side you you have sort of open retail, pretty much fill your boots. You know, there's, there's no limitations on, on on that. And then there's the sophisticated, self-certified high net worth or, and, and the like. And that's really where we focus and and with Minexi within our private market uh, platform is to look at those sophisticated investors who want to do that enhanced level of due diligence, value the fact that we have vetted the deals that go on our platform and gone through our own our process to make sure that it's something of note. It's not just a pile in, everybody have a go at this sort of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that vetting is so important. And oftentimes I know investors who aren't familiar with the mining industry or maybe haven't invested in it before, get a little overwhelmed perhaps by the technical data or even the the financial structure in some cases, because mining investments can be a, a bit different than others. And I think having that level of vetting done must give your subscribers, your members, a much higher level of confidence in the deals that they're looking at. Yeah, well, we, we certainly like to think so. I mean, the, the interesting thing is where we, we hope to be headed next. And, and in effect, our platform is deal agnostic, which is why we did our first fintech deal last year. 
And that was really exciting. It was something new. Yes, fair to say we were outside our comfort zone, but worked very hard to make sure we were comfortable with the deal, spoke very closely to the the, the company. And that's you know looking really interesting. But the, that sort of justified our logic that the platform is a transactional space. And therefore, you could put any form of deal on that because, in effect, you're just providing the the, the sort of gray mat, the, the gray space between your pool of investors and and your issuers. So we are looking very closely at the green tech, fintech spaces, and a range of others where things look to be sort of picking up a pace. And again, it comes back to what I said earlier on about the sort of digitization of the market. And and we've been forced down this route to a certain extent by COVID or to a large extent mm-hmm. by COVID, let's say. Um, I think many would say it was probably going to happen anyway. Yeah. And that what COVID has done has just accelerated that. It's not just accelerated, it's stuck it into orbit because these things are, are moving so quickly now, which, which is exciting. <laughs> it's got a lot of pressure, I'm sure they agree yeah. from, from what you're doing as well. But um, I mean, there's a lot of things we can do to, to help ourselves there. And, and you, know, you guys have hit it on the hit it on the head by by looking at the NI43101 as the standard, you know, mm-hmm. post BREX, you know, we, the, the advent of the, the 43101 as the go-to standard. And, and yes, other standards are available, but most people understand and, and can grapple with the NI43101 because it's so well laid out. Everybody understands this chapter, that chapter, that chapter. And, and look, for the early stage projects, you know, chapters sort of 12 through to, to 20, it probably says they haven't done any work yet. It's great when you're writing those reports; you can get them done really quickly. <laughs> but it, but yeah. it's un, it's easy to understand, and you know which chapter to go to for that information. And Jork does something very very similar with the the table system that they employ. So standardization is ultimately good for investors. It's good for the issuers. It's good for the technical teams working for the issuers. And I think the more and more that can be standardized, the better. The challenge that we have within the mining sector is actually the quality of the reports. So it's all very well having you know the standard list of things you have to write, but it's actually the devil of the detail that's gone into that, that that's key. And uh, there's quite a number of commentators out there who, you know, regularly have a good look at the, the standard of the reports out there, and I think justifiably are taking people to task. And there's a you know there's another you know we're talking about platforms and things like that. There's a few more systems I think coming out that will pick through those in a little bit more detail to give those sort of investors who are doing that elevated level of due diligence more comfort, more information so they can make an educated, informed uh, choice on their investment. Yeah, I know one of the interesting features that we put onto Prospector that we didn't think was going to be as popular as it is, is the ability to see how many other reports the QP or the qualified person has written on that commodity or on assets in that country. And I've spoken to several investors who are surprised (laughs) at how many reports certain QPs have signed off on. I think just the ability to see the amount of work that folks have done in a certain area or on similar projects tells you a lot, especially if you're if you're trying to evaluate you know, how much you want to trust what the report is saying. It's a tough thing because there is a standard, but as with any standard, like you said, it doesn't, doesn't mean every report is the same, right? They have the same structure, but they're not all the same quality. But I think it's, we heard that a lot when we started Prospector. Oh, you're going to base it on 43 101s? Like, nobody reads them because they're like 300 pages long <laughs> and super dry. And people are looking for, you know, five or six key sentences in a 300-page report. 
at that initial stage. Later on, folks dive in deep, but I think that's where we hope we're making the 43101s more useful by making them more accessible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, if you're out there managing a family office or some sort of fund and, oh, golly, where do I put my money? Well, you, you probably have a, a general idea of the sort of just jurisdictional risk that you're, you're comfortable with. You, you might be very clear on your intent to look at precious metals or base metals or, or some of the, the newer, um, areas, energy, energy metals, lithiums and the like. You might have a pretty good idea, or you might be kind of like, I'm not really not sure. I'm, I'm open to anything above a certain quality line. So the more and more we can sort of digest and distill that down and make it readily in, indexable, mm-hmm. the better. And I think that's certainly work where you guys are, are, are achieving with, uh, with Prospector. I mean, coming back to your comments about the authors earlier on, I mean, here's an interesting thought. Um, take those reports and then go and actually retrospectively look at the success of the project. For the, after the author has written it. I think we will probably in the coming years see greater scrutiny over the quality of the reports that's being done. Mm-hmm. I, you were certainly, you know, miles ahead of where we were. I, I, again, you know, mentioning the sort of Briex catalyst for all of this. But yeah, it's, there's, there's still a quality issue in, in, in many cases. In the meantime, I think you made a great point about the power of digitization and the ability to, you know, in simple terms, put layers on top of layers and look for anomalies that that would have taken you a much, much longer time to identify or maybe would not have seen if you didn't have digital data. And I think that leads us into another D word, which is democratization, which is something you and I have talked quite a bit about. And with the GameStop <laughs> scenario that's happened over the last uh, week or so, I think is a really interesting one around mining. On the one hand, we want to encourage participation in the sector, right? And you want people to jump in and invest and get involved. And, and But on the other hand, it is a technical space. And what's the balance between getting people excited and involved, but through investing in the sector while also making sure they know what they're investing in? Or do you think it's important for people to really know all the technical details? Yeah, really good question. I think in the current era, I think it's way more than just the technical side of things. And I think if you look at your atypical, sophisticated millennial investor, yes, the technical aspects are key, but I think they've also got a very keen eye on the in the environmental social governance aspects as well. Yeah. And that whole democratization piece is just about is is just as much about that as it is the the access to the technical details and making these deals more open to everybody and and not shall we say the the sort of sort of traditional broker financing which is maybe open to a very small subset of the investor population just because that's where the contacts are and it just doesn't get that for that just the you know, news of the opportunity doesn't go that far that, I mean that's certainly why we're trying to what we're trying to do with the NR platform is is open it up but the ESG one is an interesting one. The proliferation of sophisticated recording invi- uh, devices, um, i.e. Uh, mobile phones, you could be in the deepest, darkest part of wherever and somebody will pick out their smartphone and start recording you. Mm-hmm. And therefore, from an ESG point of view, traditionally often thought of being, well, that's kind of for the board to worry about. Now you have to make sure that everybody from the chairman 
down through the board, through the non-execs, through to the advisors, the consultants, the, the field teams, right the way down to the cook, but your geotechs on the ground. They need to know why are they there? What are they doing to make sure that they are looking after the environment? What is the company doing to look after the social sphere around them? A lot of companies will sort of arbitrarily throw some some money at ESG. It's like, well, let's go and build a school. The warm, fuzzy projects, as we call them. But yeah, we have seen this in the military as well. Great, you've built a school. Congratulations. Now, what are you going to do? Oh, crikey. Well, you need a teacher to sustain that that capability. A lot of people just don't think necessarily, a lot of organizations don't think long term. And fundamentally, if you look at a lot of the uh, the overseas development agencies, one of the sort of key underlying tenants they'll often work to is do no harm. You've got to look at that in the short, medium and long term. And I think we will see, thankfully, I think it's a good thing. I think we'll see more and more scrutiny over ESG. I know there's a lot of other companies out there who are looking to develop standards. Mm-hmm. There are some standards out there already. They're not sort of locked in. There's no one sort of gold standard anybody's subscribing to at present. But I think that may come to the point that somebody has almost ESG accreditation given to them. Yeah, Is that a gold star on, on your platform or my platform, whatever it might look like? I, I don't know, but I think we're headed somewhere down in that direction. Yeah, and I think it, it brings up a point also that ESG is also something that isn't a one-time deal. Right, that that ESG will evolve into a an accountability measure as well. Right, that you have a plan, you work the plan, you know, you can go in and essentially audit the plan and, the, and know that the companies have stuck to what they committed to, which I think is really important and is where technology also really comes into play with the the transparency, whether that's you know the ability of people to film you <laughs> and tweet out that you're not following your yeah, plan yeah. or <laughs> or monitor things remotely also, you know, as we increasingly work remote, you know, a kind of team in the UK monitor and make sure that that their team in Yemen is is doing what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to do it, right? That's I think how people think mining technology and they think machines that move on their own. <laughs> yeah. Automation. <laughs> you know, automation, right, exactly. <laughs> but but it really comes into play as much on the investment and the management side as it does kind of the cool earth mover vehicles. Yeah, I think you've you've touched upon another really interesting point there. So that ability to remotely monitor. Obviously, in the last uh, couple of years, we've seen a number of terrible disasters with tailings dams failing. I think it would be fair to say that the the repercussions for those incidents have yet to play through. I think we're going to see greater and greater scrutiny on on specific parts of mining infrastructure like that, because those are legacy issues. They will stay there for eternity once the mine finishes. So they have to be monitored for a good long time. But I think what's really interesting is that we are seeing the ability to have cameras and various other sensors continually monitoring and looking for change, whether that is monitoring a pit face and looking for the threat of uh, a slope failure. Uh, several examples of that, Bingham Canyon a few years ago, where they, they knew it was happening, they could monitor it and thankfully managed to get everybody out in time. You know, By putting sensors on the ground, you can, whether it's satellites or whether there's a daily routine of your little drone at the mine, that we've also seen drones permeate right across mining, that your little drone goes up, does its survey, flies its LIDAR, radar, whatever it is, and you know plugs in, downloads the data, and it's all automated. 
a human being doesn't need to be involved. If a red light goes on saying there's been a displacement of a, a certain number of, of millimeters that exceeds the tor- tolerance level given the weather conditions, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, I better go and monitor that a bit more closely. And I think we'll see more of that automation aspect come through for monitoring sites, let, let alone monitoring the people on the sites, the, the technology that's going into mining cabs. We're, we're seeing some of that through this, this whole sort of Tesla type thing, you know, the driverless cars, the autonomy that's there. You know, collision avoidance or monitoring drivers, operators for, for tiredness. Well, in the wearables even, right? Like air quality underground, like all the wearable technology. I mean, and, and it always makes me think about, you and I have both worked in, a, well, you actually are in, in the reserves, right? In, in the military, but me having worked as a DOD civilian, you know, we've seen so much of how technology and innovation that was developed originally for the military eventually finds its way into the private sector. And sometimes it goes the other way around. And I know some of the sensor work that's gone on is, it's just so cutting edge that probably even five years ago, it was probably only used in the defense space. And now it's just incredible the way it's integrated into everyday operations, not just in the mining space, but but certainly in our industry. Oh, the reduction in cost, new materials, lighter, cheaper materials, the, the Internet of Things, the, the connectivity that you can achieve now, certainly in the UK, the advent of uh, 5G networks and the speed that that, that carries. Satellites in general. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, it <laughs> right, seems yeah. to be if you if you have the money these days, you're sticking satellite constellations into orbit, um, you know, not not one or two, you know, by the hundreds, if not thousands. Yeah. And I think that'll be really interesting to see how that will affect mineral exploration. You know, again, one of my other sort of early jobs, I was in Saudi Arabia for three months. And, you know, once a week, I got to go back to the, the nearby mine site and sort of clunk away in a very, very slow dial-up modem to check my emails, <laughs> you know, which, which were, you know, really, really basic. You know, okay, I had a satellite phone, for, you know, for emergencies and things like that, but but that was it. But we're getting to a point now where you can be literally anywhere in the world and you'll have... Yeah, well, at minimum, so 3G signal all the way up to, to whatever these these satellite constellations are going to deliver. That that comes back to our point about everybody as a as a reporter at that point with their mobile phone. But certainly in terms of you as a explorationist, to be able to operate on the ground, collect data quickly, assimilate that data, almost to the point of that gets shunted back up through the network to sort of the main main the mainframe somewhere although quite frankly the processing power even on the handhelds is now it's in the cloud <laughs> yeah yeah that you're you're almost getting results on the hoof i mean uh, portable xrfs will will give you a degree of that information and i really exciting to see what's happening with some of the drilling technology as well so whether it's the directional drilling technology that you know would have been more sort of oil and gas before that is now far more accessible for mining down the hole sensing, the various geophysics uh, sensors available. I mean, I think the key thing is that we're generating so much data now. It's just incredible. I think the the last PDAC was uh, I went to was a couple of years ago, and I was I was absolutely gobsmacked to see some of the the X-ray systems that were available now. You'd put your core in the machine, and and it would Scans X-ray the it. core, and you could see yeah. all the mirage. You know, oh, there's my gold distribution or whatever it happens to be. I mean, that is just staggering. It's a staggering uh, level of information, a staggering amount of data as well, and that, that's probably going to be that's probably going to be the biggest issue. We're, we're going to eventually get to a point where we're going to drown in the data. 
Well, that's where I think the next leap I anticipate we'll have is this move into big data, right? Which other industries are already dealing with. But I think it's taken a little while for our industry to get there, not because the technology is not there, but partly because of how mining exploration is financed. It's been there's been a slower adoption rate of the new technology that's come out. Right. If you can do it cheaper with a few junior geos logging core, <laughs> right, out in the field, and you know, you've only been able to raise a million bucks because that technology is always a bit expensive when it first comes out. I think it's taken a little while, but especially with the way the market's going right now, I wouldn't be surprised if we're if we're hitting big data levels in a year, a year and a half. What do you do with all of it? Right? How do you use it? Well, that's it. And you come back to the AI machine learning capabilities. You know, we've got the processing power. The, these computers can handle it. I suppose it's the, the key thing at any with any one of these sort of questions is it's asking the right question. If you don't ask the right question and you've got all that data, the computer is still not going to be able to spit out the right answer. Well, and the, as we've learned with Prospector, the computer has to be able to speak geology and speak mining. Right. And it was an interesting exercise for us coming up with a taxonomy at the very beginning. Like uh, I remember one of our developer team said, OK, so for this phrase, volcanogenic massive sulfide, which is the most important word? <laughs> volcanogenic <laughs> massive or sulfide? You know, like those kinds of questions that you really have to go back and deconstruct how we talk about geology in order to really get the most out of machine learning and AI applied to those big, big, big data sets. Yeah. If you look at the sort of recent era information, okay, it's a, you know the digitally available stuff, that's great. But I mean, it, when you start getting your head around the older archives of material that predate the digital era, uh, slowly but surely, a lot of that is being digitized. And, and that is this absolutely some money hidden away in that yeah to be pick up to for you know picking up on a very subtle geochemical anomaly in a, in a data set from golly the 1950s or whatever it was that's it's you know it's on a print it's on a typed piece of paper in some folder somewhere to have that digitized and to be able to pick through that and you know back then that wasn't anomalous but by golly it possibly is now and and, and suddenly they, they you suddenly start finding where where's that on the map right who's got that bit of ground <laughs> Well, I remember us going over that with the uh, with the Soviet reports in Afghanistan, right? When we were looking at things that the the Soviets were paying no attention to in the seventies. I mean, they captured it, but it wasn't their priority. And then we would look at those assay results and be like, "Holy cow! Like, let's go find that." <laughs> uh, the Soviets, wherever you've seen them, gone out and done uh, geological expeditions. I mean, these these weren't this wasn't just prospecting. This was systematic semi-militarized, you know, battalions of geology, stroke drilling and all the rest of it, they deploy out there to do these extensive programs. And somewhere abroad, like Afghanistan and all the work they did in the, the 70s and the 60s, or whether it's just across the, the FSU states themselves, huge volumes of data, but it's it's getting into the weeds of that. And yeah, okay, they've got a slightly different system. The, the GKZ system is is different to JORC and it's different to uh, the sort of Canadian uh, approach to, to resources and reserves. But we're, it's probably fair to say that we're getting closer to some, at least some way to, to understand what, what equates to what across those uh, standards. And, and at that point, you're, you're sort of leveling the, the, the playing field of information across all those jurisdictions. 
you can pull that all together and it starts getting really exciting. You know, whether you whether you want to go to that particular jurisdiction and then follow up is, is really depends on, on your investors and, and, and what your intent is. But uh, there's there's definitely some opportunities to be had out there. Well, I think that's also connecting in the, the Soviet, essentially military geologists and, and your experience. The other neat connection, I think, is this increased focus on critical minerals. And as we develop new technology, whether that's for commercial purposes or also in the defense space, the applications that are being invented every day that require different metal and different minerals than what we've used for the last several decades. I think, you know, of course, the one that everyone talks about is, is rare earths, right, and, and their defense applications and how important rare earths have become, where, again, back in the 70s, the Soviet geologists looked at Kanishin, right, a carbonatite in, Af in southern Afghanistan that has light rare earths, but we're looking at it for uranium, right? They didn't care about the rare earths. How much has changed now in, you know, in those decades? And I think that's, that's the flip side is what kind of minerals are we going to care about in the next 20 to 30 years that we really don't care about right now? Yeah, technology is just going so quickly right now. We're obviously on the riding the lithium wave right now. All very well and good until somebody invents a, a battery that uses something else. I don't know. And, and you know, you read some of the, the scientific papers out there and people, people are certainly doing it. Clearly, there is the sort of the, the overarching intent uh, across certainly most of the Western nations to look at greener technology, to look at uh, how to grapple with the challenge of climate change. But fundamentally, the sort of adage of if you can't grow it, you've got to mine it still rings true. And yes, great, we're going to build the biggest wind farm in Europe. And certainly in the UK, we've, we've got, I think, some of the... Uh, if not one of the, the largest sort of wind farm capabilities in the world right now, and, and it's due to grow. But that's great. But you need your copper for the turbines. You need your rare earths for the magnets. You still need all your other materials to build the blades, to build the foundations and the superstructure for these uh, these things, to put the cable from out in the sea to get it on shore as well. So you fundamentally still need those raw materials. So it, it's, let's call it a dirty necessity. But maybe a rocky necessity. Not <laughs> <Yeah>. Rocky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a fact of life. You cannot get away from the fact that we need these raw materials. Coming back to the current uh, COVID epidemic, you look at the countries and what they are doing to stimulate their economies and they are pouring money into infrastructure. Well, infrastructure needs steel, it needs cement, it needs all those other raw materials. And funnily enough, we're back again into to mining. And, and I think what's striking in terms of that need for those raw materials is actually taking a step back and looking at the people who need to be servicing that mining sector. And I'm not sure what it's uh, what it's like in the States or, or Australia, but certainly in the UK, if you look across the universities, there are a lot less courses focused around geology in the first part, let alone mining, um, compared to what what there was certainly back in 98, 99 when I was doing my master's. Now, yeah, mining is cyclic. I get it. I learned the hardware coming off my master's in mineral exploration in 99 to gold at $250 an ounce and the, the chancellor of the exchequer in the UK selling most of our gold reserves for very little. But, you know, and then we went on through to, to 2007, dropped off again, and then back up to two, the, the heights of 2011. So we've got the cyclic nature of the, the, the mining sector. 
but where's the next generation or the generation of after that of geologists, engineers, geotechnicians, geochemists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, we need those. That's probably going to be a big, big challenge in the future is actually just having the, those people with the, the right knowledge, skills and experience to support the sector. Probably one of the greatest challenges I would say to the mining sector in the future is that capability. Yeah, I mean, we we focus at Prospector a lot on talking about mining differently in order to attract millennial or, or younger investors. But I think it's also the case for workers, right? If people, if all they hear about is how terrible mining is and it pollutes the environment and, you know, you're they have this image that you're still working in the, in the coal mines of the 1950s, right? If that continues to be the perception, you're not going to get people to work in it. And, and in fact, the industry is so different than that perception. We use so much technology. It is a safe industry. It's a, it can be, in most cases, a very clean industry. Uh, and I, I do think the industry has done a terrible job <laughs> in marketing itself to the next generation of, of mining workers and, and leaders, frankly. You know, you don't see people, you never hear someone like leaving Tesla to go run a mining project, right? Or leave Twitter to go run a mining project. Why is that? You know, you don't see this transition or, or jumping into the industry because people, frankly, aren't excited about it who aren't already in it, which is a shame. I don't think there's a silver bullet to get around it either. I think the economics will ultimately speak for themselves. If we get back to the sort of the, the dizzy heights of 2007, 2011, where graduates were being snapped up off the production line, being sent out to a field camp, and you know, and paid a paid handsomely. I think we may very well get back to that point because the, you know, the, at that point, your geologist is 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 a commodity, and if you want a good geologist, you're gonna have to pay for them. But there's that lag, right? Where if you don't have enough people who have gone through a geology program to snatch up, if we continue to shut down geology and mining programs at the universities, you won't even have those people, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I also think it'll be interesting to see with the changes in in media and how you know people are paying attention now again at least to certain commodities if we see some very visible leadership i think that comes out of the current industry that can really make it inspiring and attractive for folks right i mean in other industries you certainly have a group of of innovative leaders maybe will be the ones with nr private markets and and prospector but you know it'll be interesting to see if you you have new folks come into the industry that people look to and say hey that's a really cool career i want to do that I think credit where credit's due. Every time I've gone to PDAC, I have been absolutely gobsmacked at just how well they have communicated the opportunity for mining. Obviously, mining's a, a big part of sort of uh, Canadian culture and life, contributes significantly to their their economy. But you know, cutting about the the PDAC and seeing the groups of students, you know, right the way down to to, to primary kids who are being you know taken around and, and shown. The core, the drill rigs, uh, everything that's on show there. I mean, you know, crikey, I can imagine being a, a third grader, as you'd say in the States or something like that, and going into this massive hall and seeing all this kit and all these rocks of every color and shape and form. I'd be absolutely blown away. So I think that's brewing. And I think we need to see sort of more of that openness and, and, and getting out there and showing the kids what's out there. I certainly I've uh, on occasions gone and spoken to primary school kids. And, you know, all you need to do is quite, quite frankly, all you need is a handful of fossils and they're in, and they're literally in your hand. 
Uh, but you know, equally, if you, you're showing them bits of rock with uh, uh, even just a great big lump of pyrite, they're they're immediately drawn in. It's a, it's a fascinating subject because obviously geology has chemistry, it's the the, the geography aspects, the the physics. Uh, you know, it's it's a real sort of mix mash of all the sciences and and history and everything else, maths rolled in. I'm just, it's just disappointing that it's not really more taught as a subject in its own right, certainly here in the UK. Well, so to circle back to how we opened, in order to close, if you could work in one country in the world that you haven't worked in yet, where would you go? <laughs> I have to be careful with this answer. <laughs> Because if Uh-oh. I if I fr- if I fr- if I phrase it wrongly, some people's backs are going to be right up. The country that I would most dearly love to go and do geological work in, uh, well, it's not so much a country, but it would be the continent of Antarctica. Ah, okay. Very obvious for for very good reasons, legal or otherwise. Um, you know, there's there's no mineral exploration going on there, but I think as a piece of ground as remote and as barren, ice barren as it is, I think that would just be quite incredible. So yeah, I think I think somewhere like that. That would be cool. Similarly, mine isn't quite a, a country, but I would love to be involved in the, the deep sea mining. I just think it would be so neat to, from a technical perspective, but I also, I used to love those Dirk Pitt novels. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember Go, those? You know, oh, Clive, Clive Cussler, yeah, yes, I, no, I'm a huge, yeah. huge fan, yeah, no, brilliant. I mean, the, the, the Numa the files and stuff the, like that. Exactly, the undersea archaeology component. So I've always been fascinated with submersibles and and how all of that would work. So I think that would be my my version. That's quite a good one as well. Yeah, no, for sure. And you might as well take it the next step beyond that and 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 head into outer space as well. That's that's we we know more about the surface of the moon than we do of the seabed of the of Earth. So, very true. Yeah, I mean, and I do think. I mean, I we spend a lot of time looking at at space mining, and I think it's fascinating. But for some reason, I think because it's so little is known really about the ocean that that. That does jump out to me even more. Maybe I'm just less scared to go underwater than I would be to get, <laughs> go into well, space. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much, Drew, for for joining. And uh, from Afghanistan to Antarctica to the bottom of the ocean, we'll be look forward to staying in touch and hearing where you go next. Thank you so much for having me. A real pleasure to catch up with you. And I think it's going to be an interesting year ahead. And let's see where we go. So cheers. Cheers. Thank you to our guest and my colleague, Drew Craig, for joining us on this episode of On the Rocks. To learn more about Drew and NR Private Market, visit nrprivatemarket.com and check him out on LinkedIn at Drew Craig Mining Exploration and on Twitter at MarketNR and at Sapper Geologist. For more about Prospector, go to prospectorportal.com or check us out on Instagram at prospectorai and LinkedIn at prospectorportal. Thanks for joining us on the rocks. Until next time, keep your glasses full and your ice cold. Cheers. Cheers.